Oh, good morning. Lovely to see you. Be with you. Um, my name is Ian. And uh, how about if we pray that God makes this few minutes useful? Father in heaven, thanks for the gift of life. Uh, thanks for all the privileges we enjoy uh, living in Australia. And uh, we also ask now that you would speak into our lives. You would help us to be set free from things we believe that are nonsense uh, and to get the weight of those things that are true in a way that would really transform us for the glory and the honour of your son. We pray this in his name. Amen. <clears throat> that sign uh, at a senior member of church asking um, the other day, what's it about? Because they were unable to come to the celebration and vision service when we first outlined what it's about and then also unable to come on the weekend away where it was also explained again. One wins one and a picture of a harvest and one cute little bit of wheat or whatever that is. And it was just a, a, a sort of an invitation to think quite deliberately, is there one person and to pray that perhaps God would use us, each one of us, to help win one person from the darkness to the light, to Jesus. And uh, it's not a, not a command, it's just a, a thing to pray. God, use me. I'm available, I'm yours. And maybe even I will be used to help someone. Um, what we see in Acts 10 is a one-win-one situation. It's a bit of a case study in a sense. It's, it's probably unlike any that any of us have had, but to play our part in the Holy Spirit's work in bringing people to Jesus. Now, if I think about my own life, uh, four people helped me become Christians, two brothers, and then these two other guys. Um, this is going to sound a bit macabre, but Jack, uh, his death was used um, to wake me up. His brother, Simon, uh, who was a couple of years older, I think he actually probably targeted me as someone who needed to get saved and he spent a bit of time with me. Um, there was a guy, Peter, who I used to row with, who I used to mock mercilessly for being a straight, boring person, but who once talked to me for a few hours, uh, although we knew each other for a few years. And then a guy called Jeff Ellerton, who was the world's straightest person. All my other cool friends used to mock me for being friends with him. He did weird stuff like he wore shorts. And even when it was 110 degrees in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, he didn't wear shorts. He wore jeans, but he wore shorts. So, but it was only years later that I admitted to Jeff just how significant he had been in God helping me become a Christian because I was very rude to him and mocked him and his girlfriend um, at the time. Just wondering, who do you think was the most? Was there a person? Uh, even if you're not yet a Christian, who has helped you the most, perhaps in moving towards Jesus, uh, that God may have used in this way? If you're sitting near enough to a person to talk to them, why don't you just share a sentence about who the person was who's actually helped you take this whole Jesus thing a bit more seriously or get it clearly? So why don't you just turn to the person next to you and say, I, it was this person or that person? Yeah, just briefly. I'm sure all sorts of strange people were mentioned. Um, in fact, in one of the testimonies that we shared yesterday at the, at the baptism, someone talked about the extraordinary patience of those who'd put up with them in Sunday school and things like that. Um, 
Now, what we see in this story, as you heard read, and the reason it was read in the order it was with the second half first is simply because I thought the second half might interest the kids more. Uh, the first half mightn't be as interesting. But it is interesting sometimes, as we see in various movie series, you go back to the prequel, what happened before. Um, but this is a great story. It's a significant story. A guy called William Barclay, who's no, who he's dead now, but he, was a, he wrote many, 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 many books about the New Testament. Um, but he suggested the book of Acts that we're looking at today very, very briefly is perhaps the most important book in the New Testament because of the way it stands at this important pivot uh, in history. We can talk about that. And chapter 10, as we'll see early next year, is, is very important. It's where Christianity bursts out for the first time from just being all Jewish people who believed in Jesus to being people who weren't Jewish who also believed in Jesus. Christianity at a human level could very easily have just stayed as part of Judaism, one of a number of the main streams within Judaism, but it didn't. It burst out so that often people are surprised when they hear of people who are Jewish people and Christians. I'll mention one later today who are sort of of the seed of Abraham, but believe in Jesus. So we're going to look today at how God does this, sort of how God brings people together and how God can use work quite secretly at times in sort of matchmaking people that he can sort of bring life to some. So we're going to look at the secret hand of God, the simple message from God, and the surprising work of the Spirit of God. Uh, so firstly, the secret hand of God. Now, if you, you heard it read, I'm going to assume that you were listening and you can remember much of it. Um, scene one, it's in a few scenes, quite clearly broken up. Scene one is Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and he's a godly man. He's not Jewish, but he's sort of looking in through the window of Judaism. And we know there was a whole group of people like this in the ancient world who, in spite of their being brought up as Romans or Greeks or Egyptians or whatever else, they, they looked, they could see that the Jews had something different. And they were often called God-fearers. Cornelius was one of those. He's got, there's a description, four different things which mark him out as a God-fearing man, a praying man, and a man who also gave generously to the Jewish people. He's at prayer and an angel turns up. Interesting, later on he describes him as a man. Because sometimes when an angel turns up, it's not entirely, you know, they don't all flap around with wings like in stained glass windows. So Cornelius, who's seeking God, is given a message through the angel. Then we go to scene two, which is Peter, the disciple of Jesus, who denied him three times, the old, the old fisherman. And he's been doing various work for God and he's finished up in a township called Joppa, uh, which is actually where um, the, the city from which Jonah fled away from God, taking the message to, God, to others. Uh, he's at Joppa and Peter is hungry. He's waiting for lunch. He goes up on the flat roof, which has got a view of the ocean. He falls asleep, it seems, and he has that weird vision of the sheet coming down and um, it's, it's full of animals, creepy, crawly animals, all sorts of animals, many of which Jewish people are not allowed to eat. And the voice seemingly from God or an angel says, Peter, rise, kill and eat. And Peter says, a classic Peter expression, no, Lord. And you kind of got to choose which one you're going to go with that one. You either go, yes, Lord, or no, whatever. But Peter is blunt and straightforward. No, Lord, I'm not going to do it. I hear what you're saying. I am not going to take up and eat. I've never eaten anything that isn't clean. In the laws of Leviticus that came through, uh, through Moses, he said, no, 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 I've never done it. I ain't starting now. I don't care if I've got a vision and a dream. And the, went down and up three times. 
Three times he's told, take up um, Peter, kill and eat. Three times. No, he ain't going to do it. And he finishes up, not his heart strangely warmed and feeling what a lovely spiritual experience he's had, but puzzled. And we're told twice that he's trying to work out what on earth it means. Scene three is when the messages from Cornelius, who the angel had said, send to Joppa, it's two days walk. And one of the many times where you just see this book is written by people who knew the landscape, the idea that they were not written by people who were... Um, you know, familiar with the land or familiar with the times. It's just shown false just by the fact that they, they just say it's a two-day walk from Joppa to Caesarea, and so it is. It takes about two days. So the guys come from Caesarea, from, which was sort of an, an important administrative town for the Romans. Herod the Great had built a, an artificial harbour there. That's where the governor tended to stay, and they had the crack troops there. And amongst them was this Cornelius, who was a centurion, the absolute backbone of the Roman army. They were hard men. And the Jews hated the Romans and the Romans despised the Jews. Uh, I, this, isn't, this is probably a bit soft, but it's a bit like if you can imagine if you were a loyal Frenchman in the 1940s and the Nazis had conquered, uh, how you would feel about a Nazi officer. Only I think it's fair to say the Nazis were generally speaking a tiny bit more civil than the Romans were. One of the great things in that show that some of you have watched part of called The Chosen, which is you can get it for free, blah, blah, blah. So it, it does help us see, I think, some of these dynamics, the, the way in which the Romans, who were the most powerful group by far in the known world at that stage, just despised the Jews. They hated them. They were nothing but troubled. And they'd kill them as soon as look at them, frankly. Um, you see that in that. And also, but the Jews hated the Romans. <laughs> They had spiritual hatred, spiritual pride. They would refer to them as dogs. Many of the Jews believed that the only purpose for the non-Jews was to be logs in the fires of hell. They didn't all believe that, but that was a significant view. So there's these two cultures that really don't like each other. And you can particularly, I think, understand the Jews not liking the Romans, right? Imagine if the New Zealanders conquered Australia, how we would dislike them more. No, no, not more, but... um, But you you don't like people who've taken over your land and slaughtered and killed to keep it. Anyhow, these two worlds collide. The messengers come. Peter's had this vision. He's trying to work out what it means. And suddenly these non-Jewish people turn up. He would have thought were as unclean as eating pig. They never ate together. Why not? The Jews wouldn't do it. But suddenly these two worlds collide. His servants, Cornelius' servants arrive and off he goes because he's had the vision. Then he delivers the message. Cornelius, as you heard, has got a large crowd together, his friends and relatives, to hear the message. We'll see a little bit why later on. He was instructed uh, that something big was going to happen. Peter is talking and then the Holy Spirit interrupts him. Um, The Holy Spirit has sort of organised all this, but Peter gets a good way through his sermon and the Holy Spirit simply speaks over the top of him uh, and brings it to an end. And Acts, scene six is chapter 11, which we're not going to look at, is where Peter gets in trouble from his other fellow Jews for having gone into the house of a Gentile. They just didn't do that. And God is at work. God is bringing these two people together. A man who's interested in seeking God and a man who knows the way to God. They would not normally have ever met, but God is moving things. Peter does not know what God is doing in Cornelius' life. Cornelius doesn't know what God's doing in Peter's life. God knows what he's doing. He's bringing them together in this wonderful way that there can be blessing all around. So there is the secret hand of God at work. Secondly, finally, we get to hear the message. 
Now, what happens um, in chapter 11 when Peter has to retell the story? One of the ways that writers in these days emphasised something was that they would, they would take up lots of space in their book. Right? This was where paper was expensive, writing was difficult, copying was difficult. But he tells the story in chapter 10. He almost tells it twice in chapter 10. Then he retells the story in chapter 11. It's a way of saying, do please notice this. Right? Um, and what, what we get, the little clue that we didn't get in the other story is when Peter's telling the story to clear himself before his fellow Jewish Christians from being in trouble, verse 14 of chapter 11, the angel says to Cornelius, he will bring you a messenger through which you and your household will be saved. Uh, in chapter 10, we're just told, oh, we hear, go and get him. But in chapter 11, you hear a little bit more that you're told that this will be the message about how you get saved. Now, here's the interesting thing. Why didn't the angel just tell him? It's a common pattern in the Bible. An angel turns up but won't actually tell the gospel. They point you to the person who will. And those of you who've been praying for and supporting or even involved in um, mission work, particularly amongst the Islamic community around the world, will know how often uh, when a person becomes a Christian who's been Muslim, they'll say, I was praying and an angel appeared to me and told me to go to the Christians right? and, and directed them where they could find them. So they took them much more seriously. Or some, some Muslims I've heard speak have said this, that they were, as a young person, one particular guy said, as a young man, sort of primary school age, he had a vision one time of a man who was very loving and very powerful. And when he finally heard about Jesus, oh, he just knew deep in his spirit, oh, that's who it is. But it's, what's interesting is the angel doesn't tell Cornelius the gospel. It would have saved a lot of moving around, wouldn't it? Would have heard it a couple of days earlier. Peter could have done something else. It's just not the way God does it. The angels may play a part, visions may play a part, but in the end, the good news of the saviour of sinful humanity comes through saved sinners. And that's the way God does it. So the angel does not deliver the message, he just tells him how to get to it. Well, what is the message? Because that's the thing, it's, it, there's that great moment when, um, as uh, Andrew read for us, when um, Cornelius says to Peter when they're in the same room, We've gathered here together in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Yeah. See, he doesn't want to hear Peter's three most interesting spiritual experiences. Right? What has God told you to tell us? You're God's messenger, boy. You're God's apostle. You're an ambassador. Tell us what he's told you. And he, and he, he gets this terrific outline of the gospel. Now, because I know you remember everything I've ever said from here and you're at church every Sunday, so I know we've all heard all the same stuff, I don't live under many illusions. Um, that might be one. But um, you, I know you'll remember when we looked at Mark's gospel at the beginning of last year that it's almost certain uh, historically that Mark wrote as Peter's um, secretary. There's very early records of that. And C.H. Dodd, a very fine English scholar, noted uh, last century that Mark 10, the sermon of Peter here, is like an, like an index of what's in, uh, sorry, Acts 10, is like an index of what's in Mark's gospel. Going back to, it's one of the few sermons that goes back to John's baptism. Talks about the miracles, which a lot of the sermons in Acts don't. Talks about his baptism, him being sort of empowered by the Spirit. And then talks about his death and his resurrection and those are the witnesses. It does seem as if Peter's sermon is naturally enough echoed in the book that it really is his memory of Jesus' life. 
And uh, there's a lot that we could be said on this. It'd be beautiful. We're not going to spend enough time on it. But just notice, he first of all speaks about the life of Jesus from verse 38 onwards. He, he says, You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Then he talks about the baptism and the miracles, going about doing good. So what does God do through Jesus? He sends a message of peace. What, is, what, is, what does he mean by the word peace? See, if, if Russia and the Ukraine stopped fighting today, you wouldn't, that's not exactly what the Bible means when it uses the word peace. It does mean the absence of war, but it means much more that it means the presence of blessing and abundance and joy and goodness, and it will be quite a while, if ever, before the Ukraine or before Ukraine becomes like that again, sadly. But peace is that sense of yes, the absence of stress and strain between us and God, but the presence of His blessing in our lives. Jesus comes to proclaim peace, who is Lord of all. We're told that He is crucified, and they killed Him in verse 39. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, or hanging him on a tree, literally it is. Uh, the significance of that is that the Old Testament is very clear that to be hung from a tree is a sign that you are accursed. It's a, very, it's a shameful, like being nailed up on a cross. So it's saying the death was a particularly shameful death. And the Apostle Paul will speak of him in Galatians 3, 10 to 13, of him being accursed for us. And he took our curse. So it's not just a death. It's an accursed death which he does for us. Then it speaks of his resurrection. God raised him from the dead, verse 40, and he appeared to witnesses. And this is one of the things about Christianity. It's very clear the death of Jesus is real, the resurrection of Jesus is real, and people saw him, or as Peter says here, we ate dinner with him. We had meals with him. This was not a spiritual experience. It was a physical experience. Was in the realm, it was in this realm, right? as real as you are. I could touch you. We could eat meals together. That is what Jesus did when he came out of the tomb, full of new life and a body that wouldn't deteriorate. But that's who Jesus is, and he rose and he appeared to these witnesses. That's the message, isn't it? That's the classic Christian message, isn't it? Right? The life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the witnesses to it all. This is the classic message, the simple message that the, the early Christians were sent out with. Now look at verse 42. Verse 40, I remember the first time I noticed verse 42, it just really rocked me. What it is that Jesus sends the disciples out, we know that from the Gospels. Listen to what it says, verse 42. The resurrected Jesus, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that. So unnecessary but sort of for emphasis, double thing. He commanded us to say and to testify. That's a strong sort of a legal courtroom word. What are these guys to say? Well, Jesus doesn't leave it up to him. Tell them the thing about me that you like the most. That's fair enough. No, no, Jesus tells the apostles what they're to say about him. And it's very interesting to see what Jesus wants his people to tell the rest of the world. Look at verse 42. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that, I wouldn't have guessed this in a million years, that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. So Jesus commands the apostles not just to proclaim that he is the one who died for their sins and who rose again from the dead. 
Jesus wants you to know and wants us to let other people know that he is the judge of the living and the dead. That's all of us. All human beings are in one of those two categories, living or dead. So it's, it's, he is the judge of all. Now, that is very relevant to everybody. It doesn't matter how uninterested a person is in religious stuff. It doesn't matter how satisfied they are with life at the moment, how they can't imagine that God could add anything to their lives, which frankly, to my pathetic shame, was what I thought. How can God possibly make my life better than it was? When I was 18, it was just not perfect, but pretty, pretty close. I just needed to be a bit richer and I was working on that. But you see, no, no, he, he will be the judge. You will stand before him on trial. And you, the verdict will be passed on you, either innocent or guilty, either welcome or depart. Right? It's very serious and very relevant. The most relevant thing you can know about your life is your future, short term and long term. And as I understand it, we're in, we're in psychological danger, not just when bad things have happened to us, that's hard enough, but when we can't see good things coming to us, when we despair and give up. And the Bible's got a lot to say about our future. But here it's saying this, Jesus wants people to know that he is the judge of the living and the dead. When he says that in John chapter five, when he makes it very clear that he is the judge, they try to kill him. The religious people try to kill him in John five, why? For blasphemy, why? Because the only person who's the judge is God. So if I stand here and say, I'm the judge of the living and the dead, Anybody who knows anything about God, if there is one God, is I'm, I'm saying I stand in the place that only God can stand. But Jesus does that very consciously in John 5 and in many, many, many of his parables. John 7 and, and three of them in, in, in um, sorry, Matthew 7 and then again in Matthew 25, Jesus has himself on the throne determining people's eternal futures. And he wants people to know this. And the Apostle Paul, when he goes to Athens, a, a sort of a almost as important a sermon as this one, uh, off to the great university city in the centre of all upmarket culture, the last couple of sentences he gets to say is that God has fixed the day when he will judge the world in righteousness. So in my little life, I've had a few things in the calendar fixed for this year. The weekend away, that was fixed. Right? Baptism, that was fixed yesterday. Right? Um, Weekend of uh, December the 18th, that's fixed because Alice and I are going down to a family sort of Christmas thing down in Melbourne. And December the 25th is circle. I'm not sure what's going on that day. But um, there are certain days that are fixed. And in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul says, God has fixed the day when he will judge the world in righteousness. That's why Christians rightly, if they take Jesus seriously, it could be today. Today could be the day or it could be tomorrow. I don't know when it's fixed, but it's fixed. And Jesus says it'll be a day just like today when he will turn up and you'll see him as judge. Whether you believe in him or not, he is the judge. It's very important. Then what is the very next thing Jesus says? Oh, the, he tells the apostles to say, verse 43, this is a relief. All the prophets testify about him. That's Jesus, the one who died and rose again. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. I think, blimey, how do I get ready for that day in court? 
everyone who believes in him, everyone who trusts him, receives forgiveness of sins. You say, well, hang on, last week weren't you saying we had to do Yeah, 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 but what last week, what James is saying is, you got real faith or not? Or just tick it off, oh yeah, he's a good guy. No, no, we, if you trust him. So the one who is the judge is the one who you trust for forgiveness. And everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So if you're a person who trusts in Jesus, you've received forgiveness of sins. So you can at some level smile at the prospect of the day of judgment because you won't get what you deserve because we're forgiven. But here's the thing worth noting for all of us. He says in verse 36, the news of peace came through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Not just Lord of those who say, yes, you're Lord. All we're doing when we become Christians say, ah, you are Lord, is simply acknowledging reality. He is Lord. He's Lord of all. As he says at the end of Matthew 28, that verse that you hear so often, you know, um, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. He is Lord of all. Verse 42, he is judge of the living and the dead. He's judge of all. This is a very universal authority that Jesus Christ has and is. But then in verse 43, it's a little different. It's universal, but differently. All the prophets testify about him that everyone, there's another word like all or living in the dead, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness. So there's a universal offer of forgiveness, but it's simply not the same thing. Here there is a response called for. He is Lord of all, he is judge of all, and he's the forgiver of all who vote him trustworthy. If a person takes a vote in their heart that he's not worthy of their trust, not necessary, well, he will respect that choice. So that's the message that Cornelius needs to hear. Here's the interesting thing. It's possible, and some people do this with Cornelius. They say, look, here's a good man. God himself says that he's impressed with him. He notices the good things he's done, the generosity, the God-fearing, the praying. And he says at the beginning, Peter says at the beginning of the sermon, I now realise it's true that God doesn't show favouritism, and neither he does, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what's right. So there you go, you see, you've only got to be doing the right thing. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, well, 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 well. You've got to slow down and say, what does Jesus say is the right thing? You don't get to write your own recipe and hand it in. He'll tell you what's right. And as we looked last week, what are the works God requires? Jesus gets asked. The work of God is this, to believe in the one whom he sent. But what what Peter's realised with that vision is God no longer cares whether you're Jewish or non-Jewish, whether or not you can run your line back to Abraham or not. That whole division that the Jewish folk live with and still in some ways do if they're religious between the Jew and the non-Jew, the Jew and the Gentile, it's over, according to Jesus and the apostles. But Cornelius is not okay with God because he's such a good man. What does the angel appear? The angel appears and doesn't come and say, hey, Cornelius, you're so good, you don't need to hear about Jesus. He says, you've been such a good bloke, God wants to send you to Jesus. Like Nicodemus. You meet Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He's a really good dude. He's a really good man. He's, He's from a group that have decided already that they hate Jesus. But Nicodemus has got an honest heart. So he goes to see Jesus. And what's he told? Nicodemus, you are a ripper. I I don't need to die for you. You're so good. He says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. I mean, this is is the Green Beret 
this is the best of the best of the best. And Jesus says, you need to be born again, Nicodemus. You need to start all over again. Same with this guy. He needs to hear the gospel. That's so the blessing from God is that he is led to the man who will share him with the gospel. So there's this sort of secret hand of God bringing this man to hear the simple message of God in the gospel, the big all. Well, lastly, we just it's, it's helpful to remember, I think, brothers and sisters, the surprising work of the Holy Spirit because all of this work in Cornelius' life, work in Peter's life, bringing them together is all the work of the Holy Spirit. That is how Peter describes it, particularly in chapter 11 when he summarises it for the brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem who are not happy with him for not working with the Jew-Gentile distinction. The Holy Spirit works in Cornelius. The Holy Spirit works in Peter to bring them together that Cornelius hears the good news of Jesus, the Son of God, Lord of all, judge of all, forgiver of all who trust in him. That's the great news. And it is worth remembering that Cornelius would have seemed to Peter and, and people like him the last person in the universe to become Christian. He is a crucial officer class in the army that has crushed Jerusalem and ultimately would destroy the temple. And it killed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Jews. At one point, the Romans broke into the temple and offered pigs on the altar to show their utter contempt for the Jewish religion. And yet this is the man who God wants to bring to himself and he's going to use Peter. And brothers and sisters, when it comes to one wins one, uh, can I say, think big about who God may use you or who God may save in your, in your part of the universe. It is often the most unlikely people. I've mentioned in a previous time a man called Anthony Weiss. Anthony Weiss is a very good friend of mine. I met him when I was, well, I actually met him before I was serving at Shaw School. I, met, I went to give a talk and he did something that only two people did in my five years of going to various talks. I'd give it to the students. Thankfully, at most schools, the staff were there as well to help with riot control. But only twice did, did a staff member ask me a question, because I'd always have a question so that we could have some dialogue. And Anthony asked questions, and it was interesting. I didn't know who he was at that stage. It was before I went to work at the school. And he was a little bit aggressive. And, but it was quite fun, because he, and he didn't just ask one question. He kept coming back at me on the sort of question, I will show that you are a fool. Not only a fool, you're an immoral fool by the questions I ask. And it was quite good because the boys enjoyed listening to two adults having an argument. I think they quite enjoyed that. And he wasn't all that popular, I discovered, when I got there. So it actually probably did me some good. Uh, he, be he was quite new on the staff, but he, was he became very popular. In fact, at one stage when I was serving, he's an atheist. He's a very wealthy atheist. His parents, uh, that Weiss fashion stuff, for those who remember, and great benefactors of the arts. And Ant, you know, he was sort of, if we have an upper class, Ant, he was from that group, very confident, very moral. Um, in fact, at one stage, I, for some stupid reason, I thought if all the staff were going to be killed and we could only have one and we sort of would clone them and reproduce them, I'd, I'd clone Anthony Weiss. He wasn't a Christian at that stage. In fact, I didn't think he was any, ever going to become a Christian. Um, but he was just such a good man. He really loved the kids. He was a great educator. He was such a plus. He needed nothing, in a sense. He would think he'll never become a Christian. He's got no sense of need. In the end, we talked and we became friends. And he began to talk about baptism. And it never crossed my mind that he wanted to be baptised. He just, he was, you know, one of the, he was just, anyhow, I was so slow on the uptake 
that he got someone else to baptise him. <laughs> I went to the baptism uh, near a holiday house that he owned. And, um, because I just I couldn't imagine Anthony becoming a Christian. Right? He, he had it all together. Why would he need a saviour? And I said to him, I said, Anthony, how did, it ha- how did this happen? Because he was such a confident atheist. Also a Jewish atheist, which sort of gives him an extra strength sometimes. He said, I woke up one morning and I could not get God off my head. He, and Jesus in particular said, I just couldn't escape. And it was very clear that God had said, I'll have you. Right? I'm working in your heart. And now Anthony's you know, serving God as, a, as an Anglican minister, which I never thought he'd do, um, in a very difficult area of the world. Filthy rich, but it's a sewer, like a lot of those university colleges are. And uh, he's serving God in that place. And I'm saying, I had not, I was actually, we used to go for walks together and, you know, just to get a bit of fitness going. Uh, he'd walk with a backpack full of rocks and I'd just walk. And, um, but we were quite good friends, but I had no idea what God was doing in his heart. God is doing this secret work in many hearts. And I have shared once before that the first funeral I was ever involved with was an alcoholic guy who lived in the park in Hornsey where I was a youth minister and he died tragically. He was a lovely man. But at his funeral, I was at the wake at a pub, which is an odd place to have a wake for someone who's died as an alcoholic, but that's what we did. That's where it was held. And I was just about to leave. I was getting a bit bored and I had things to do. And I started to talk to his daughter and we chatted for a few minutes. Then she said this. She said, I, I've been thinking a lot about God for the last six months, but I don't know a single Christian. Now, she worked in a hospital. My hunch is she knew lots of Christians. Very difficult, I think, to work in the area of nurses and doctors and all that sort of stuff and not know a single Christian. And here's a woman who's really thinking about God, wants to talk to someone, doesn't know a Christian, my own theory, I think she knew lots of Christians working at Hornsby Hospital, but none of them had even identified themselves. So here's a woman who's thirsty, and God's working on her heart. So can I suggest just, you never know who God is working, just to be available. Imagine what would happen if Peter had said no, that he was not teachable. I am not going to work at that filthy I'm not going to talk to that dirty Roman with his filthy, unclean food, etc., etc. if he'd really stomped his little foot. I have no doubt God would have saved Cornelius. I don't know what God would have done with Peter. But he would have missed out one of the great, important privileges of his life. Don't force yourself to stay on the sidelines watching the game, yelling support for the game. But to be available. And God, I just, can I be involved in one person's life? I've chosen 2.5 people for my one wins. One's a family member, not Alison. <laughs> and, and two people I've met since I've come down here, two men who aren't Christians, um, and I'm just praying that God will save one of those people. Have you chosen someone to bless by praying for them? And to do your own soul good, actually, to be ready that God may use someone like you You say, but Ian, I've been a Christian for 30 years. I've never led anyone to Jesus. Well, you know, you worked for 40 years and you've been on holiday since, so you can learn new things. You can learn new skills. And that course that Andrew will run again for us, just listen, 
It is such a helpful course on how to be natural in relationships and share. And it models from Peter, because at least three times in this thing, Peter asks questions. Ask questions of people. If they, are, if they say something rude about the church or Jesus or religious, ask them a question. How long have you held that view? When did you come to that idea? Have you met other Christians? Right? If they say something about the Bible, say, when was the last time? Have you read it? Would you like me to read it with you? There's all sorts of questions we can ask, as Peter does, gently and in a friendly way, to play our little part in what God is doing. So just to be available to God. And you never know what God may do. He does like using the most unusual people. But don't rule yourself out of the game. Christ is able to use all sorts of different people to reach all sorts of different people. He's a specialist. He won't use angels. He will bless us with that great privilege. All right. Well, I hope that's helpful. I hope it's encouraging, not guilt-inducing, but just to say, make yourself available and pray. Ask questions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you give to us little broken people full of self-doubt, the enormous privilege of sharing the good news with others who are broken like us. Uh, We do pray that you would help us to believe in your power, that you can work through us to be involved in the greatest blessing anyone can ever have, as you did with Cornelius through Peter. Thank you for those who played their part in pointing us towards you, and we do want you to use us in whatever way you like to point people to your son. So our Father, in spite of all of our weaknesses, we want to be available to you to do with us whatever you wish. For the glory of your Son. Amen.